Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. So, first thing we're going to do, let's begin by uh, just opening up praying. Uh, I like to do this when I study. We're just going to ask God that, that He will show us what He wants us to see. Uh, so hopefully I'll forget anything that He doesn't want you to hear that I've studied, and, and you'll hear all the stuff that He wants to hear. So, let's pray. Father, uh, first of all, we just want to thank You for the opportunity to be here. Thank You for uh, the grace that You've bestowed upon us that calls us together into community. Thank you for the forgiveness that has been given. Um, God, I pray that we would never, uh, our understanding would grow deeper in the grace that you have given and our our appreciation for what you have done would grow. Father, teach us the things that you want us to hear, the things that you want us to understand. God, help us to remember those things that you want us to apply in the coming days, weeks, and months. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, first thing I want you to do, um, and you can do this in your mind, you can maybe write it at the top of your paper if there's somebody sitting next to you that you don't want to see, you know, maybe hide it, but I want you to write somewhere, mentally or otherwise, the sin that you find most offensive. Something that when you think about um, produces in you a visceral response, you just don't understand it. Um, You know, it could be uh, a liar, it could be a murderer, it could be something like that. But I just want you to think about that in your mind and write that down somewhere because we're going to need it. So either you either have to have a really good memory, uh, commit it to memory, and remember it towards the end of class. Uh, or uh, write it down someplace so that you can kind of um, follow through as we go through this. Now, what I, the next thing I want you to do is I want you to take that sin. Let's say that the sin is, the, I'm, I'm going to use lying, okay? Let's say that you say the thing that bothers me the most is lying. So now I want you to take that and, and turn that into characteristic of a person. So somebody that lies is a liar, or somebody that cheats is a cheater or murders. Okay, so we got that. And then I want you to plug it into this blank. Can a liar be a Christian? Or whatever that sin is that in your mind you have thought of as being most offensive. It, it's at the top of your list. Okay, everybody got that? I want you to think about that for a minute. Minute, minute. Uh, my dentures got in there. I want you to think of it. Now, answer the question. What do you think? Can, is that become a Christian or be a Christian and be what they, they, they are? The question is, can a fill-in-the-blank, whatever the person is, be a Christian? Can a liar, can a murderer, can a, I don't know, whatever else you have. Child molester. You're really quiet. Yep. That one's a hard one. <laughs> For 
me. Okay? There's a reason why I'm asking you to pick the thing that is most offensive to you, right? You know, because if we pick something that's no big deal, you know, I, I don't know. You know, maybe perhaps we think, well, I, I don't know any murderers. You know, I don't have to interact with any murderers. You know, the, the other place I think where we, we will struggle with this is with some social issues. Uh, for instance, homosexual or adulterers, you know. So, again, I want you thinking in, in terms of the thing that offends you the most. So. But ultimately, the answer is yes, they can Okay? We're going to find out, right? That's really what the book of Romans is about, isn't it? It's about can these people be Christian? Can these people find grace? And, and in essence... That's what we're going to answer today. Um, now, here's the next thing I'm going to ask you to do. Rather than thinking about that particular thing that you have been thinking about, that particular sin, let's just put it in the generic. Okay? Can a sinner be a Christian? Because in reality, this is exactly what Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 is all about. It is answering this fundamental question. And if you remember, one of the themes that we talked about that Romans is about is that God saves sinners. As a matter of fact, the way that we put it is God saves all sinners. Okay? So... The next thing we need to talk about is this concept of the righteous and the wicked. Um, and this really comes from the Old Testament. This is a... Uh, I, uh, when you get the notes next week, there will be a couple of passages. Psalm 1 and Malachi chapter 3. I encourage you in your own study to look those up because they kind of talk about this dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked. But we need to define who these people are. Who are the righteous? Who are the wicked? Because when, when we think about these terms that are on the board behind me, what we think about is character. Um, I, I had this thought as I was sitting watching the news this morning, and they're talking about the Iowa caucuses that are coming up, and I'm really glad that we don't live in Iowa. I just cannot imagine what those people go through. Um, but anyways, my, my thought was this. You know, as we think about political persons, you know, enter anybody you want, uh, we're constantly talking about, you know, who they are, what they've done. Um, did they do this? Did they do that? Are they truthful? Are they a liar? And so we, we always put everything in terms of character, right? What are they like? And I think that's how we often think about this subject right here. The righteous are those who do righteous things, and the wicked are those who do wicked things, right? Problem is, that's not at all what the biblical terms have in mind. The biblical terms have in mind a person's position or their positional standing with God. In other words, has God looked upon them favorably? In that case, they would be the righteous. If God is looking upon them negatively, they would be 
the wicked. So let's define this just a little bit. In the Old Testament, there are really two groups of people that are kind of talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, you have the people of God, which we call what? The people of God in the Old Testament are called Jews. Jews. So the righteous in this Old Testament economy or this this mindset are the Jews, and so the wicked are Gentiles. Gentiles. There's actually a different word. I'm going to put Gentiles, but I want to put another <laughs> word beside it because we see this word most often: unbelievers, nations. Why do the nations conspire? What is in Psalm chapter 2? He's talking about the wicked, the Gentiles. Okay? Um, So we have uh, Jews and Gentiles. So as you think about the Jewish nation, what is it that caused God to look upon the Jewish nation with favor? Why were they positionally in a better place than everybody else? That was the where his son was going to come from. Okay. His son was the lineage. Okay. So God did something with Abraham, and he later did something with Moses. What did he do with them? A covenant with them. He made a covenant with them. So these the Jews are favored because of their covenant status. Chosen. So these are the covenant people. Uh, and God required Jewish males to be circumcised as evidence of the fact that they were under the covenant. Uh, let's see, what else? In the New Testament, uh, we call the righteous what? Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. church. We call them the church. Meaning the assembly called out ones. Okay? Positionally, their position, their standing with God is different. Why is their why is the church's standing with God different than the rest of the world, the wicked? Because of the covenant of Jesus Christ. Okay. Because of the new covenant. I'm going to put um, in parentheses the gospel because most often we, you know, it is shared in relation to the gospel. Uh, these people are converts, so this applies to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, somebody from the nations could willingly submit themselves to the law and to the prophets and become circumcised, and become a convert to Judaism, and that changed their positional standing before God to where they were considered uh, righteous. Uh, And then finally, the last thing, uh, and we could go on quite a bit, but I would tell you these are the repented ones. They have looked at the evidence, and they have said what God has said about life and death is true, Uh, And the penalty that exists for my disobedience is true. And so therefore I'm going to reject that and choose a new path, a a submission to God's way. So the wicked 
uh, are the Gentiles or the nations, they are obviously uncircumcised. There's a reason why I'm putting this word in here, because Paul's going to use this uh, in chapter 2 when he talks about it, as well as some other passages. Uh, these individuals are outside the covenant. Could also say they're outside the law. Uh, the Old Testament talks about the uh, the wicked and the nations as being proud, boastful, and uh, enemies of God. So, these are the ways that the Old Testament describes these people. Now, here's what's fascinating. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are told that use a couple different colors here. the righteous can do righteous acts, but they can also do wicked acts. And lo and behold, the wicked can do wicked acts, but they can also do righteous acts. That is going to be at the crux of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. That's a long setup, a big setup, to Romans chapter 2. But these are the classifications of individuals that we're talking about. In Romans chapter 1, Paul laid out the case for the wicked. All mankind is under judgment from God because all mankind has rejected God. They have turned their back on God. They have... Um, they didn't hold on to the knowledge of God. They rejected the very uh, existence of God. And so in uh, chapter 2, he's going to talk about, okay, how do we then, as the church, as the people who are now in this, the position of standing as righteous, having a positional standing with God, and in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, Paul's going to talk about how we get there. Um, but how do we respond to those that are outside, that are on the other side, that are the wicked. Okay? So, uh, chapter 2 begins. So when Paul wrote the book of Romans, how many chapters did Paul write? 16. 16. It's kind of a trick question. Paul didn't write chapters, did he? Paul wrote... Succinctly from the beginning to the end. The only place that there would have been changes is when the thought changed. Paul may have uh, used a paragraph to separate a thought. What's interesting is in the original between chapter 1 and chapter 2, while there is a thought change, there is something that we call a linking word. What in the world is a linking word? Mark talks about this all the time. He like says, therefore? therefore, if you see it, you better look what it's there for, right? Uh, so, therefore is a linking word. Uh, an author would use it to say, I'm going to change ideas, what I'm talking about, but you cannot forget what I have just said. Because what I have just said is intricately important in what I'm about to talk about. Okay? So, he says, therefore, chapter 2, You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. 
For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Let me uh, paraphrase for you what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you who find yourself in the position of being righteous because you have uh, admitted your need of God, you have found in Jesus Christ the Savior, and so God has positionally changed your standing with Him to one of what we're going to talk about is called justification. Um, Paul says God has moved you from the camp of the wicked into the camp of the righteous, he said, now here's the problem. When you look upon those who are in the camp of the wicked and pass judgment on them, the problem is you do the same things that they do. So why do you feel justified in passing judgment on them? And we look at that and we say, no, wait a minute. I don't do the things that the wicked do. Let's go back to the sin. Remember that sin that you came up with. Why is that so offensive to us? Because we can never envision ourselves doing that one thing, right? Whatever that is, that's something that we cannot see ourselves doing. We can't understand how somebody... I'm going to use child molester. How in the world could somebody do that? You know, that person deserves death and more. And so all of a sudden we find ourselves becoming judge, jury, and executioner all in five minutes, right? So what is, how is it that we do the same things? Notice what Paul says. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. How in the world do we do the same things? I'm not a child molester. Or whatever, insert your sin there. But sin is sin. Ah, sin is sin. And we sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners, not we're sinners because we sin. Right. We human, think there's human. degrees of sin. Okay? We think that there's degrees. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm committing the little white lie, right? Right. <laughs> and you're over here committing the great big one. Whatever the great big one. We, we try to justify that our sins are less extreme than somebody else's. Okay. These are all excellent thoughts. I don't think it's what Paul has in mind. We're also putting ourselves in the position of God if we think we can judge someone else's sin. Remember what chapter 1 was all about. Usurping the position of God. When we judge, what are we doing? Putting ourselves in His position. Let's read on. Verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, if you circle Mark in your Bible, mark the next couple words, a mere man. A mere creation, Paul might say here. It means the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 2. Excuse me, verse 3. So when you, a mere man, a creation, pass judgment on them, you do the same things. You are usurping the position that is rightfully held by God. You are putting yourself in the position as the self-existent one. That's why God always talks about judging so harshly. Because it is not our position to judge. Right? 
That's God's. Uh, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards your leads you towards repentance? Notice what uh, what Paul says here. There's one of two things that happens when we get into this situation. Either a we misunderstand the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God, or we just outright reject it. We show contempt for it. Both of which are not good, right? If we are not broken in chapter 1 over our sin and our sinful condition, that should lead us to a patient, uh, loving, kind relationship towards other people in chapter 2. Because what happens, verse 5, because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So, I told you I was going to tell you a personal story. And I have shared with you my struggle with driving. I drive a lot. Um, and I got this week running late. Uh, left the house, what I thought was in plenty of time, was meeting a guy in Nevada. Eventually had to be in Butler uh, to meet a guy for breakfast. Well, the guy in Nevada was late, so it wasn't my fault. Uh, he was late, um, and I got there just a couple minutes early. But I told him eight-ish, which to me means you know be there ten to late. Well, apparently he was there at eight. So, anyways, uh, I'm driving along. Uh, so I got to turn this around. I'm a visual person, in case you can't tell. So I'm gonna. I'm going to put something up here. There are these things uh, on the the highway, uh, and they look like this. Maybe you've seen them, maybe you haven't. (laughs) Okay, now it's got a nice black line around. Noah just turned 15 yesterday. He's getting ready to take his permit. So this is kind of driver instruction for him. Uh, so, okay. So it says speed limit 55 miles an hour. Or MPH. I don't know. That might mean an average or something. We're right. What does this mean? What does this instruct us to do? Do not go over 55. Do not go over 55. It's the law. It's the law. 56 is not acceptable, right? 57, 60's out. What about 45? You gotta watch that too. Do so a if you go too slow, they can still give you a ticket. Yeah, on some highways, yeah. uh, I-70 through Kansas, I-80 through Nevada, there are actually minimum posted speeds. You have to maintain, or, or a state the patrolman will come up behind you and say, hey, you gotta get off the highway. You can't maintain the speed. Is that the point? It's okay to do 54. What's that? Most people think it's okay to do 54. Most people think it's okay. So, there's two ways that we could look at this. This is the law, right? Right? It's the law. That's why it's posted there. One way of looking at this is that this tells us the maximum speed we can go. 55 miles an hour. The other way of looking at it is it tells us the speed that must be maintained. 
In order to maintain righteousness, you have to do 55, not 54, not 56, 55. Don't we look at it that way sometimes? 55 is right. Anything else is wrong. So somebody gets in front of us doing 45 miles an hour, and it just happens to be in a stretch where there's a bunch of oncoming traffic, there's no passing lanes, and all of a sudden, we're not real happy, are we? <laughs> you see, if the road conditions are such that uh, we can't maintain 55 miles an hour, it is really okay to do 45, isn't it? Or 35. If they're snow-covered, ice-covered, yeah. if we don't feel comfortable with it, or if we just don't feel comfortable going 55, it really is okay, isn't it? You see, what this sign really is intended to do is to make me think about the person in front of me not as a Caprice Classic or a, a, a Chevy Tahoe Blazer, but a person, a person who has choices, and who has value in the choices that they make, right? Even if they're doing 45 miles an hour when I need to get somewhere. It's an inconvenience for you. It is an inconvenience for me. But the person isn't an inconvenience, right? See, that's what the law was intended to do in the Old Testament. It was to teach us that people have value, and in that value it should control our, it should conform our behavior so that we extend the courtesy to them of personhood. But the Jews had turned it into, no, it means 55. You're doing 54. You're going to hell. Right? So, now we get through this. You know, okay, God is dealing with Mike, and Mike is submitting, not liking it, but he is submitting because God is God. And so we're fine. Eventually, there comes a point in time in the road where I can get around said person. Um, off we go. Everything's fine. Ten minutes later, cruise is set at 55 miles an hour, and all of a sudden the truck starts getting real big in my, in my rearview mirror. I mean real big and real fast. And I feel the need, the justifiable need to make sure that my brakes work in that moment. Now notice how a few minutes ago we were struggling with the person who was conservative in their interpretation of the law. They were doing 45, although the speed limit says 55. And in the next moment, now we're struggling with the lawbreaker. He's doing 60, 65. I'll show him. I'll make sure his brakes work too. Both are judgmentalism, aren't they? Both of them are looking at that person and saying, I have more value and more import than you do, and so therefore I'm going to apply some consequence to you. Now my question to you, get this out of the way because I don't like looking at that speed limit sign. How often do we treat people just like that example of driving? All the time, don't we? We see them doing something that we don't approve of because we don't understand it. We don't understand why they would do it. And so immediately within us wells up a sense of entitlement 
a sense that I need to show you and tell you how you are doing it wrong. Those are the people within the church. And then we see the people outside the church that are just the lawbreakers. Those are the you know 65 mile an hour people in the 55. And we want to tell them how to do it too, don't we? That is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. Let me read it again in case you don't feel quite as bad as I do. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, a creation, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, notice that combination there. Self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. What? He just says it's going to be for the Jew first, and then the Gentile, and then he says, but God doesn't show favoritism. I have three children. My oldest is 20, 22, uh, 18-year-old, soon to be 19, 15-year-old. They didn't all get to drive the same day. Tori's been driving for uh, five years. Maddie's been driving for three years. Noah hasn't driven yet, except for in the church parking lot yesterday. And my truck a few times around the house. Notice how we don't show favoritism to them. It's just by priority. Jews first, then Gentiles. So what does all this mean? Paul goes on, verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Those who are in the side or the camp of the wicked, positionally their standing is apart from the law, they will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law, in this case Jews who are in the camp of the righteous, will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's side, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Remember my example of the speed limit sign, that that speed limit sign is meant to conform my behavior to the point that I am respectful of other people who are utilizing the same roadway as I am. In life, God's commands, God's decrees are to make sure that I conform my behavior to where I am respectful of people who are using the same lane of life that we are in. God said the greatest commandment is to love Him and the second greatest is to love others. Isn't that fascinating? 
All of the law can be summed up in these two things. Love me, God says, and love others. Um, Verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. Remember we said, the wicked, although they are listed as the wicked positionally, they can do things that are required by the law. They can do righteous things. Right? We've all known somebody who had no use for God, church, or anything else, but was a wonderful person. Compassionate, gentle, loving. Right? How did they do that? Paul tells us right here. They can, by nature, do the things that are required by the law. I don't know how they do it, because my sin gets in the way all the time. Uh, Verse 15, Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, if you, if you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they have not not been circumcised? Excuse me, as though they were. Um, How many times does a person need to lie to be a liar? Once. How about murder? How many times do you need to commit murder to be a murderer? Once. Once. You see, here's the problem with the law. And this is why the law could not bring about righteousness. Paul's going to tell us later, it was weakened by the sinful nature. The sinful nature is this desire, this propensity. Remember the illustration of the broken Walmart cart. The Walmart cart that wants to go this way, and you want to go this way. That's our sin nature. We're trying to go this way, but it's constantly steering us in a way that we don't want to go. And so the, the illustration is beautiful in the sense that it perfectly describes how we are. we got a bum wheel. And that bum wheel keeps dragging us in a direction that we don't want to go. And that's why the law could never produce righteousness. But God's goal is always to produce in us righteousness. How is He going to do it? Well, the reality is God's goal was always to give us a positional standing of righteousness. And then He Himself would produce the righteousness within us. That's what the rest of the book of Romans is is going to talk about. And so here, when he talks, if you remember when Mark preached on this, he compared the word circumcision here to baptism. You could insert some other things, maybe church attendance, church membership, um, tithing. If you rely on any one thing that you do, that one thing that you do is going to become worthless. If 
uh, verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, if you submit yourself to the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. How many of the Israelites broke the law? How, how many? All of them. Remember David? What was David called? A man after God's own heart. Boy, he was a good guy, wasn't he? When we break the law, we become guilty of the entirety of the law. And so this thing that produces our position, in this case, Paul's talking about circumcision for us, would be our faith in Jesus, right? It has no value if we don't live out the reality of it. What is the reality of living out our faith in Jesus? What is the reality of you and I living out our faith in Jesus Christ? Remember, what's faith? Submission to the truth. Why did Jesus come? Save our sins. Take on our sins. Okay. So that we could be in the presence of God. Okay. He was the fulfillment of the law. Yeah. Okay. He imputes his righteousness to us because of the blood he shed on the cross. Let's talk about any more practical sense. Why did Jesus come to earth to be a man and to die? Because God asked him to. Okay. God to love the world. I mean, Jesus loved us. What other choice was there? None. 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 Absolutely none. You and I were completely hopeless without Him. Right? So when we live out the reality of that truth, that He came because He was our only hope, why would we then become arrogant as thinking somehow (coughs) we had done it? dead in transgressions and sins. But if chapter 1 of Romans tells us how everybody is under the penalty of sin, everybody has committed this, why would then in chapter 2 Paul have to turn and talk about people uh, taking the grace of God and then using it in such a way that they would demonstrate arrogance towards other people, whether they are righteous or wicked? If we had no hope, right? That's basically, I'm asking a question, but my question is what we would call a rhetorical question. That's Paul's argument here. See? So, he concludes, he he finishes up. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker, a man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is, a, is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from God, from men, but from God. Uh, let, let's just reread this, and I'm going to change it. A man is not a Christian if he is only one outwardly. Nor is following Jesus merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Christian if he is one inwardly. And he follows Jesus, and his following of Jesus is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. 
Such a man's praise is not from God, or is not from men, but from God. You see the difference there? Paul is speaking and using Jewish terminology, but he's speaking to the church. And he's trying to help them to understand. Because remember, underneath the church at Rome, all this tension is going on between Jews and Gentiles. Who's going to be in control? The old guard, which was the Jewish faction, or the new guard, which was the Gentile faction. So we talked last week about how horrific things were uh, in chapter 1. You know, chapter 1 could almost read like a what's going on in Rome today, like a newscast of what was going on in Rome. In the Colosseum and in the amphitheaters, there would be Greek plays that were tantamount to essentially homosexual orgies going on. There were killings, mass killings. People hauled in and starving animals were turned loose on them and killed them. And and the the amount of blood and death that happened in those places was unfathomable in our mind today. And it's into that environment, into that arena that Paul writes chapter 1 and the church then that existing in that environment He writes chapter 2. So, here's the ultimate question. What is the fundamental truth that chapter 2 is teaching us? And then, how should we treat individuals whose positional standing is righteousness or those in the church? And how should we treat those whose positional standing is outside the church? What's that? With love and without judgment. Okay. Let's go back to this. Can a sinner be a Christian? We said, I think with uh, most of us did, that the answer is yes. You see, we struggle when we change the word sinner here to a particular sin, right? This is where I think we have to understand that it is possible for us to be characterized by something. Lying, cheating, stealing. Uh, you struggle with that, but you don't give in to it. Right? But let, let's take the example, because this is kind of the hot button topic, homosexuality. If we put that in here, and you ask the church on a Sunday, you would get probably a 50-50 answer. You know, can, can a homosexual be a Christian? 50% would say yes. 50% would say no. Can't. Can't do it. But when you put, can a sinner be a Christian in there? Well, yeah, 100%. Yep. What's the difference? You see, we struggle with with certain things. So let's go back to the homosexual. So is it possible for somebody to have homosexual tendencies and yet constantly submit that under the authority of God and not act out on it Mm -hmm. and be a Bible-believing Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same as you and I. Right? I mean, our sins might not be that. It might be something else. But it's still our sin. And going past that, if they do act on it, but then repent and continue on trying, I mean, continue on their path. And that because... um, This is where we are going to get into Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Where Paul describes for us the positional understanding of the believer. 
that in God, you used the word earlier, that God has imputed his righteousness to us. He has given us his righteousness, even though we are not uh, uh, capable of that. We, we can't achieve that. And so we, uh, we say that we are justified. Um, that is God removing the penalty of sin that exists in our life. He removes the death sentence that is over us. But the problem is, even though the penalty is gone, the death sentence is gone, we're still sinful. We're still sinners. And so then we get into, uh, in theology, we use this word, sanctified. It uh, doesn't appear in the, in the Bible a lot. But uh, when we talk about sanctification, we talk about removing the power of sin in our lives. The effectiveness that sins, our sin nature has in causing us to, to, to wheel towards the wrong side, to drag towards the wrong side, that is done through the Spirit of God. As we reckon our flesh as dead and God resurrects that flesh, the power of sin is defeated. And then ultimately, uh, there will come a point in time when we will be removed from the presence of sin in heaven. God will remove our sin nature from us. He will change us to where we will then be without sin. And so that is essentially what Paul is going to take us through in chapters uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Maybe a little bit of 9. Chapter 8. Okay, back to uh, can, a, can a sinner be a Christian? So really, in, in addressing this issue of, of judgmentalism, we have to address these two um, camps, if you will. Because I think this is what we struggle with. How do we respond to people who are in the church? And how do we respond to people outside the church? So, let's talk about that. How do, let's start with the righteous, or those who we might say are inside the church. How do we respond to somebody when we look at their life and we see that it is not consistent with somebody who claims to follow Jesus? Okay, Somebody says, I'm a Christian. I go to church with you. Um, you know, I sit right beside you. We sing the same songs. I, I partake in the same communion. But I am living a life that is not consistent with that truth. Um, it could be in business dealings. It could be uh, they're living some kind of uh, in an immoral relationship. I mean, th- there could be a variety of things. But what they claim is not how they're living. How do we deal with those people? I have a question. Yes. In, in qualifying the sinner, can we say that, I mean... There is a difference between a person who struggles with sin and a person who embraces their sin. And would that, how does that factor in? To the, to the, to the sinner who says, oh, wretched man that I am, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't, you know, mm-hmm. that person compared to the one, I'm saved, therefore I can, and embrace their sin. How yeah, what I will tell you is Paul is going to deal with that. He's not necessarily dealing with that here. But with the heart, when he talks about the the one who is um, inwardly in circumcision is that of the heart, I mean, that would imply a motive that is purified, that is right by the Holy Spirit, 
not that their behavior is always perfect, but that there's a conflict there instead of a... The uncircumcised person acting, is that when he When he was talking about, um, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, mm -hmm. with the circumcision is, that is of the heart. Yeah. So that, to me, would be that the sinner who struggles with sin and not the one who embraces their sin. Am I being... Well, I, I think when, when Paul is talking about the Jew who is one inwardly, they have been circumcised, but the other thing has happened where they are submitting themselves to the law and saying, God, what does it mean for me to live out the reality of the law? In other words, it's not just a fire insurance card. You know, I got saved. I'm good. I can live my life however I want to. But but they're actually saying there are consequences to my decision. And so I would say in the application of what you're asking, are we talking about the, the person in the church who is a, I hate this, to, who is a true believer or a person who claims to be a believer yet embraces their sin and wants to live independently, not submitted to the church? Yeah, so I, what I would tell you is... Um, you know, as we come to church, we can't, we can't, you know, it's not like we wear badges. Okay, I can pick on Kathy because she's my wife. So, okay, she claims to be in the church, but we all know she's really not, right? I mean, she drives 56 miles an hour. She can't be in the church. So, I mean, it's not like we can tell, right? The only way that we can tell is by the behavior that is committed outside of these 2,800 walls. walls I was going to say four, but there's no so, I mean, really, that's the only way we know, right? Is behavior. So, the question is, how do we, how are we going to respond to the person that we go to church with that we see behavior that to us doesn't seem consistent with the truth? Does that make sense? freedom with love. You can hate the sin, but you don't hate the person. Okay. Paul's going to say in Galatians 6, chapter, uh, verse 1, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you will not be tempted. Okay, so we should restore them. What if they don't listen? You pray for them. What if they say, Yvonne, I appreciate that, but I don't care? Mm -hmm. Anybody ever had somebody say it? I have. Mm -hmm. Then you go through Matthew 18. Okay. So God has given us a way that the church can collectively judge individuals. Notice it's not individual, is it? Do you notice that? Uh, would you read? Do you still have it? I'm sorry. Galatians said, I can quote it for you. Uh, Those of you who are spiritual, the collection of the body restored him. So in other words, at some point it has to collectively come before the body where the body doesn't. Matthew 18, it's been pointed out. We go to them individually. If they don't listen, then we bring it before the assembly, before the body. The church together makes that decision. And for the purpose of restoration, yeah. not for gossiping. Yep. Not for kicking them out. Yep. But towards that goal. Yeah. So, and then obviously there are ramifications. Now, let's talk about, so, so that's the big picture. Let's talk about the little picture. Mike. Let's talk about me or you. A couple of things that I think 
how we should treat people within the body of believers. Number one, we should recognize positionally that there is equality. It doesn't matter if it is Mark Christian or uh, a 13-year-old. The position is equal. We all stand in need of the Savior. And His grace is effective to remove sin's penalty and sin's power from our lives. So there is equality in our position. We should encourage one another to submit to the truth. You know, I, when I share these stories with you, it's not... Uh, I share with you my struggles because I have them and they are real, but I find that as I submit myself to the voice of God, I am able to lovingly submit to these things that sometimes I don't like. But because my belief is that God is way more important than anything that I am or anything that I'm trying to accomplish, it, it becomes possible. So we should encourage one another in submitting to the truth in our life groups, in our uh, times of just sharing together before class, after class, before church, after church, as you get together in your homes. That, that is what we should do, right? We should encourage one another. We should understand that there is a common unity that exists within the body of believers that needs to be guarded. And so if, if we see everybody ganging up on one person, everybody's ganging up on Bob, and, and it, it should be our job to come alongside and say, wait a minute, why are you doing this? Now, if Bob is acting in such a way, there's a whole other set of issues how to deal with that. And this is where I think we struggle. We read do not judge in Romans 2 and then we get confused with Galatians 6 and Matthew 18 and we say, well, the Bible doesn't make any sense because here it tells me don't judge and here it tells me to judge. Right? And we throw up our hands and we say, I can't make sense of it. No. Romans chapter 2 is talking to Mike Smith, the individual believer, the individual follower of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, Matthew 18 is talking about the church how the church ought to handle all these things together. As an individual, it is not my job to be your judge, to be your prosecuting attorney. I did not die for you. It is not my job. That is God's job. Now, I will come alongside and be there with you in any way that I can, but that's God's job. God's the one who bled and died. And unfortunately... The church today has become a bunch of prosecuting attorneys, right? Did you see what so-and-so did? Did you see what this person did? So that's how I think we should handle uh, when we're dealing with somebody within the church. Um, how should we treat people outside the body of believers? <coughs> so these would be people who do not claim to be Christians, okay? This is the world. I know in, in my family, my, my sister-in-law is a Christian, and a lot of times me and my wife look at the way either her or her children dress, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's easy, I mean, it's easy to, to judge them because, of, you know, they're very, sometimes they dress inappropriately, but my opinion is that we really can't judge them because they aren't believers, they aren't Christians, they have no, that's not, 
question that that's not an issue with them. Um, they could care less what other people think of them. So yeah, I don't. I personally don't don't judge them that way because they're not Christians. Yeah. I mean, unless it was a unless it was like a, a criminal law kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that they were murdering somebody or molesting somebody, or you know, uh, I will let the the I let the the law of the land you know take care of that. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to my, uh, and I'm going to, because we're running, getting close to running out of time. Uh, my illustration of driving. Got the person in front of me doing 45 and a 55 and the guy behind me coming up doing 65. So the person in front of me is the righteous, right? The churchgoer, the believer. The person behind me is the wicked. I am called upon to not judge either one, but to look at both of them the way that God would. I, I wrote this down. Uh, why do we expect people without the truth to live as though they know the truth and have submitted their lives to the truth? Think about that. We look at the world. Uh, uh, if you know somebody that does this, I'm just going to apologize right up front. Uh, It breaks my heart when I drive through Web City on a Sunday afternoon and I see people uh, who are standing out there and yelling at people going by. Let me me read my statement because this is what they're doing. Why do we expect people without the truth to live as though they know the truth and have submitted their lives to the truth? You know, that's like yelling at a cow saying, hey, why don't you give eggs? That doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet, in reality, that's what we are doing. And I guarantee you, God sits in heaven and He is crushed. It's the exact thing He ridiculed the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees for, the way that they treated their own people. Okay, uh, so our job as believers in Jesus Christ is not to point out the fault of others, There is a difference in seeing a life that is inconsistent with God's truth and challenging a person, confronting them with the truth they claim to believe, and pointing out a person's failure simply to make myself feel better. And I think sometimes that's what we get into. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.